Hello, everyone. My name is Emily Barr, and I have been a member of Christ Presbyterian Church for several years now. My family and I now attend the Cool Springs location. I'm thankful for this opportunity to teach the Word of God because it's the best kind of motivation to learn and understand it for myself. A couple of years ago, I was asked by the previous nursery director to teach a short series for preschoolers during our monthly Moms and More gatherings. We learned about creation, the lost sheep, Jonah and the whale. The kids were so cute, but the best part was the time I spent preparing those lessons and learning what lay beyond my own childhood understanding. Studying this passage, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10, has been enlightening for me because, of course, I thought I understood it already. After all, what more is there than a song I learned as a little girl in Sunday school? I won't sing it for you, but I am going to recite it. It goes like this. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And when the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today. It's really not a bad summary of this very short story, and it certainly cemented the heart of it in my little mind. Jesus wanted to go to Zacchaeus' house. That singular fact is very obvious from even an initial reading, and I'm glad I learned it when I was young. Jesus inviting himself to be friends with this wee little man is a sparkling gem of truth. But it's important we keep rereading Bible stories like this. Educators call it a spiral approach to curriculum, when through repetition, we deepen our understanding with more complex ideas and layers of meaning. Although my Sunday school song is true, it's incomplete. It doesn't explain why Jesus wanted to go to Zacchaeus' house, nor does it touch on the overall significance of the story. Because if it's in the Bible, the living Word of God, we must consider it useful for training in righteousness. In other words, if it applied to Luke's audience 2,000 years ago, then it applies to us now. Jerem Bars includes it in his book, Learning Evangelism, because it is a demonstration by Jesus of how we are to interact with unbelievers or outsiders. I would like to highlight three applications I learned from Luke 19. The first is look for eager hearts. The second is prepare to be a guest. And the third, anticipate salvation. So look for eager hearts, prepare to be a guest, and anticipate salvation. So let's take a closer look at the story of Zacchaeus. Here we have this eyewitness account of a face-to-face -face encounter with Jesus. I wonder if it was Zacchaeus who shared it with Luke or someone else in the crowd. Because at the time, this exchange would have been very memorable to anyone who saw it. The Bible tells us people grumbled about it. They were scandalized by Jesus' behavior. In the final days of his life, Jesus has chosen his 12 disciples, and they are on their way to Jerusalem, passing through Jericho. He has been traveling city to city, village to village, crowd to crowd, preaching the coming kingdom of God. Throughout his preaching, by way of parables, his descriptions are often veiled and confusing to his listeners. He talks about secrets becoming known, sowing seeds that might not grow, foregoing the seat of honor at your own table, just story after story of a world that is about to be turned upside down. But not all of his behavior is confusing. 
Jesus also heals sick women, invites bothersome children into his presence, and feeds hungry people on the Sabbath, all the while declaring peace and imminent salvation. These exchanges are not confusing. In fact, they are quite obviously to everyone contradicting the social norms and religious laws of the time. And depending on the disposition of his listeners, Jesus' behavior is either a breath of fresh air or an outrageous affront to propriety. The story of Zacchaeus, making this easier for me, is one of the obvious ones. Jesus is walking and he sees a man in a tree. What do we know about this man? The first fact we read in verse 2, something conspicuously absent from my little Sunday school song, is that Zacchaeus was a bad guy. That's right, he wasn't just short. He was a despised, dishonest scoundrel. Luke introduces Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector. Here's what that means. Zacchaeus was a Jew, but he was working on behalf of the Romans, a violent occupying force. In order to satisfy his oppressors and earn a living for himself, Zacchaeus probably took far and away more money than was owed by the residents of Jericho, as well as bribes from anyone else who wanted to work for him. He was betraying the Jews, stealing money, and collaborating with the Romans. He was a very bad man, and everyone watching the scene unfold knew it. He was also, according to the ESV translation, small in stature. Yes, Zacchaeus was short. Don't you just hate it when you finally get your ticketed seat at the Ryman only to discover that the tallest humans ever are in the row in front of you? Or take a child to a parade or puppet show and have to hold him up the whole time just to see? That's Zacchaeus's problem. He wants to see Jesus over the crowd and he can't because he's short. So like a desperate superfan, this powerful, rich man runs ahead and climbs a tree. And then what happens? The Bible says Jesus saw him. Jesus initiates an encounter. He stops at the tree, looks up, and says his name, Zacchaeus. There is no evidence in scripture that Jesus had ever met him before. They weren't yet friends. So in this moment, when he speaks the name Zacchaeus, we see a glimpse of Jesus' all-knowing godliness. He knows his name, he knows his reputation, and because he is God, he knows every selfish ambition and dishonest exchange of Zacchaeus' life. But what made Jesus look up in that tree was Zacchaeus' eager heart. He was ready to encounter Jesus that day. He was ready to be seen. Bars calls this behavior evidence of a seeking heart. It's that little seed of faith that reveals itself in an obvious, desperate moment. Zacchaeus wants a sightline to Jesus. And like the woman in the story last week, Jesus honors his persistence, his tiny bit of faith, his eager heart. I have been thinking about the people in my life who are eager to see and be seen by Jesus. Recently, I began substitute teaching, and it doesn't take long in a new classroom to find the eager child, constantly chatting, raising her hand for attention, eager to be seen and heard. Adults are not always that obvious. I once had a friend who introduced himself as not a Christian. 
Now that might not sound like eagerness, but it did get my attention. The way I see it, there are people climbing trees all over this city. They are protesting injustice, begging for food or friendship, or maybe even rich and powerful. They are our friends, colleagues, and neighbors. Who in your life has an eager heart? Maybe no one comes to mind just yet, but there is a way to make him or her more visible. Remember another childish saying, it takes one to know one? Well, that applies here. If we want to be on the lookout for eager hearts, maybe we ought to start by seeking Christ ourselves. The more we, the more we desire to see him, the closer we will come to others who feel the same way. It takes one to know one. Look for eager hearts. That is what Jesus was doing when he looked up in the tree. And then he extends this unusual dinner invitation. Jesus says, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Jesus is prepared to be a guest. Now, first of all, I really don't think that Jesus said it the way we said it in my Sunday school. We always did this finger pointing thing like Zacchaeus, you come down as if Zacchaeus or as if Jesus were scolding him like a child. But if Pastor Scott Sauls is right when he says that no one has ever been scolded into faith, then I have to imagine that Jesus' tone was more tender and even gracious. And after Jesus spoke that invitation, there was probably an audible gasp from the crowd. The people most outraged by the very proximity of Jesus to Zacchaeus would have been the Pharisees, the upholders of scrolls and scrolls of religious laws meant to keep God's people separate from sinners in order to maintain their purity and cleanliness. I think COVID has given us a glimpse of how visceral the reaction might have been in many of Jesus' encounters with sinful outsiders. Lately, when watching characters on TV hug or share a meal, I have this visceral reaction like, no, that's not safe. In this story, social distance was the norm when it came to the sinner, especially a scoundrel like Zacchaeus. But not only does Jesus choose to see him and speak to him, he makes the most intimate of gestures and honors Zacchaeus by becoming a guest in his home. To what extent are we out of practice at being a guest? The advances in technology can make in-person socializing feel antiquated and time-consuming. But if we want to imitate Jesus and the way he loved people, it's pretty straightforward. We ought to practice being a guest in the presence of unbelieving neighbors or anyone outside our usual comfortable groups. And let's be honest, it's really hard. Just out of college, I worked for a missions organization in the inner city of Los Angeles. As part of my commitment to the experience, I was asked to live in the same neighborhood where I worked, which was a community consisting mostly of poor Latin immigrants and African-American, people very different from me, but whose hospitality was hard to resist. I was a fish out of water at first, but with practice became a comfortable guest. Some of us are still friends today. More recently, when I learned that my kids had become playmates with the children of kind of an outsider couple, I was confronted with my limited, stunted love for others. 
I wanted to find an excuse to separate us because that would be easier than getting to know this family and doing life together. I am out of practice at being a guest. But when Jesus touched, healed, and ate with sinners, he honored them as people who bore his image, his beloved creation. He became a guest at their table, and if he did it, then we should too. Being the guest of an outsider won't just be uncomfortable. It might also put you at odds with other more rule-bound friends like the Pharisees. In the message translation, Luke 19 says that the standers by remarked, what business does he have getting cozy with this crook? Those of us worried about pleasing people will be challenged by disapproval from others. One of my favorite examples of an unusual dinner invitation comes from a movie called The Help. I highly recommend it. It's a novel based on the novel of, a, of the same name. It takes place during the civil rights era in Jackson, Mississippi. The main storyline follows an aspiring white author who chooses to write a book from the perspective of, her black of the black maids employed by her friends. But there is also a side plot involving a woman named Celia Foote. Although white and married to a wealthy husband, Celia grew up poor and she is an outsider. After making several embarrassing and unsuccessful attempts to be included in the inner circle of high society, she decides to host an elaborate meal for the one person who saw and loved her eager heart, her maid, Minnie. Played by Octavia Spencer, Minnie is seen in her uniform, seated uncomfortably at Celia's table, which has been prepared for a guest of honor. A smile makes its way across the faces of both women as they settle in for a meal together. This, to me, is a glimpse of the upside-downness of the kingdom of God, one outsider hosting another. Salvation has come to them both. Which brings me to my third application, anticipate salvation. In response to Jesus' invitation, Luke says Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded any one of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus knew his standing in that crowd as an outsider, a Jewish tax collector working for the Romans. We can only imagine the ridicule and social isolation he experienced. So when he encounters Jesus face to face, he undergoes a singular redemptive moment. The Bible says he hurried and was joyful. And then he repents of his fraud by giving away half of his wealth and returning every stolen penny times four. Not every interaction Jesus has with sinners results in immediate dramatic salvation, but this one does. Jesus looked for an eager heart. He became a guest and salvation came to Zacchaeus. And the crowd sees it all. We can assume from other stories in the Bible that each person who witnessed this moment responds one of two ways. He either celebrates the salvation or becomes hard-hearted like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. 
Knowing this, Jesus gives a final explanation and reminder to Zacchaeus and anyone else listening. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Those who heard previous teachings by Jesus would remember the parables of the prodigal son and the lost sheep, both written in Luke 15. In chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus says, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. If Jesus approached sinners and outsiders this way, then we should too. Look for eager hearts, practice being a guest, and anticipate salvation. I do want to say one more thing here about our disposition as imitators of Jesus. Like Melanie, I came of age in the what would Jesus do era. For me, it seemed to be a punitive measure, invoked to remind my fragile teenage conscience to behave. It was also a bracelet to publicly show others that I was a good person and they should be too. To be fair, the church that first coined WWJD most likely had a more complex theology in mind, but that was lost on many. At the start of this study, I wondered, are we really qualified to imitate Jesus? He was not concerned with approval from others. Jesus was not tempted to engage with prostitutes or enter into business with Zacchaeus. He was God, and we are not. Now I understand that when I imitate Jesus, it is not because I am well-behaved, but on the basis of my own salvation, by grace, through faith in him. Seeking the lost, then, is our response to being found. We can only anticipate this salvation on behalf of others because we were them. Salvation came to my house. Salvation came to your house. Salvation will come for others. One day, we will all eat together at the marriage supper of Jesus, being prepared for us right now. In closing, I would like to share another song that recounts this story from beginning to end and which honors a more complex understanding of it. It's called The Zacchaeus Song by the Porter's Gate, featuring Sandra McCracken and Paul Zach. Jesus, our Lord, came to seek and to save. He sought me out and he called me by name. Foolish and proud, like a sheep gone astray, he said, child, to your house, I will come today. Much I have gained, I will give even more. Half of my wealth, it was robbed from the poor. Oh, this injustice, Lord, help me restore. For you called me by name and said, sin no more. Salvation has come. Salvation has come to this house today. Please pray with me. Oh God, our shepherd, thank you for your persistent pursuit of your lost sheep. Thank you for the invitation to be a guest at your table. Lord, reveal to us the eager hearts of our neighbors and equip us to be gracious guests. In the matchless name of Jesus, our Savior, amen.